to Ball with Y'all. It's another gorgeous Thursday here in South Florida, and we've got another full show on tap for you all today. So glad to have you joining us today, as always. If you support our mission here at Ball with Y'all, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review if your preferred platform allows so we can continue to grow and develop as a program. You can also send us your thoughts, your hot takes, your questions using the email in the description. And you can also check us out on Instagram at Ball With Y'all Podcast. As you know, there's a lot that happens beyond Mondays and Thursdays. So that's the best way to stay connected with us on all things college sports. It's been somewhat of a quiet week so far in the SEC world, but there have been a couple headlines that caught our attention. First off, you might have seen that Auburn fired Cornelius Williams. Who is Cornelius Williams? He was their first-year wide receiver coach. He's out after just four games for the Auburn Tigers, and he is actually the first position coach to be fired in the SEC this season. Williams, he joined Brian Harson's team. Of course, Brian Harson just came on as the head coach earlier this year. He joined Harson's staff after six seasons at Troy. That was his alma mater. He had been on a two-year, $600,000 contract, and all of that will actually be owed to him moving forward. On Monday, we heard Brian Harson, the head coach for Auburn, say that the decision was not ideal, that he didn't take it lightly, and that there was no incident that this was a decision that he took seriously and he felt it was the right move to make at this point in time. He also saw throughout the year, Harson, he has been critical of the wide receivers throughout the year. So I guess in some ways, this may not necessarily be a surprise, but I'm sitting here watching this whole situation play out. Of course, this is in the aftermath of a very poor showing against Georgia State. This firing, it kind of reminds me, so you all get mail in some way, shape, or form. Some of you get more mail than others, right? But say you expect to go to your mailbox at 4.30 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon. And you go to that mailbox, and there's nothing in the mailbox. And you were expecting mail, but there's no mail in there, right? What would you do? What is your first thought process? Okay, well, maybe the mail hasn't run yet. Maybe it's late today. Maybe our mail carrier got sick. Maybe you could go check next door and see if they got mail, and maybe there was an error. There's a number of responses that you might have if you don't have the mail that you were expecting to get, right? You probably wouldn't drive over to the post office. You probably wouldn't write a letter to the post office. You probably wouldn't do live chat with the post office, all that kind of stuff, because it's not necessary. You just just didn't get mail today. You'll probably get it tomorrow. And again, there's probably reasons as to why that didn't happen. In fact, you may get mail later today if the mail's just running late. But in the same way, I'm watching this whole situation unfold for Auburn. They did not get mail this past weekend. They did not go out there and show us what we needed to see against Georgia State, and they haven't done it throughout the year either. But for Auburn, their fix in not getting mail is just firing the wide receivers coach. There were a number of problems against Georgia State, and firing the wide receivers coach doesn't solve anything. You were losing 24-12 at halftime against Georgia State, and it wasn't just because of some drop passes. More importantly, if you look at the defensive side of the ball, look at Derek Mason. I believe he's the defensive coordinator for them. He came from Vanderbilt. He was the former head coach at Vanderbilt. Look at the team that Vanderbilt fielded this past week against Georgia. Lost 62-0, and that is not on the current head coach. That is a result of the players that Derek Mason recruited. That was Derek Mason issue this past weekend. Yes, Georgia was great. But the players that were out there were Derek Mason's players. And in the same way I look at this Auburn situation, it's a Derek Mason issue. I think it's the defense is not that great right now. And yes, the offense has its, has its errors, right? You look at the, the quarterback situation, and that still is not figured out. But to just put all the blame, not to say that they're putting all the blame, but to put some of the blame for Brian Harson to just fire the wide receivers coach because he thinks that that's going to fix all of life's problems right now, it's not. And you're probably going to lose to LSU this week because you're not making the choices that matter. 
Find the wide receivers coach doesn't do anything for you right now. In fact, right now, you probably need to be figuring out your quarterback situation. And we'll talk more about that later. But as we all know, there are a number of problems in Auburn right now. And I really don't think that firing your wide receivers coach fixes any of those ailments. Beyond Auburn, what was really cool came out Tuesday, actually. There was a, a report from Sports Illustrated that this might be moving in a certain direction. The NCAA is considering taking off the ejection requirement for targeting penalties. Of course, targeting is very much, in my opinion, a game of whack-a-mole, right? You think you know what to expect, but then something goes awry, right? When you're playing whack-a-mole, you think you know where the gopher is going to pop up, and it just doesn't happen. And in the same way, with targeting, a lot of times when we watch these games, you think you know what's about to happen. You like you look at it like, okay, that wasn't intentional, or he didn't dip his head, or that it wasn't forcible contact, all those different qualifiers for targeting. And then, of course, in many cases, the officials actually go out there and say that, oh, it was targeting, that player is ejected. And oftentimes, what ends up happening is maybe the penalty should stand, but the actual ejection shouldn't. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, targeting is a 15-yard penalty, automatic two-half ejection. Officially, it can be described as when a player takes aim at an opponent for purposes of attacking with forcible contact that goes beyond making a legal tackle or a legal block or playing the ball. But what does that mean in context? And actually, does it does it contribute to the goal of targeting when it was first instituted, I believe, in 2012 or 2013? Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated, he uh, announced earlier this week that among high-ranking college football leaders, there is movement afoot to at least consider an adjustment to the targeting foul's most harsh individual punishment, the ejection. By the time the 2022 season kicks off, we will likely see some policy changes made. And, you know, if you just look at the year so far, we've had 105 targeting calls, and after review, 60 of those have stood. Even those that haven't stood, we've, all, we've had a number of questions as to whether they should have been ejected and so on. Targeting has gone through many evolutions, has gone through many variations since it was first instituted. I, I'm always reminded of when Alabama played at Texas A&M in 2013 in College Station. It was a big game. Johnny Menzel was the quarterback. And early in the game, haha Clinton Dix, he was called for targeting. And this was back when targeting... Even if after review they determined that it wasn't targeting and it wasn't, it wasn't a, an issue and that the player could still remain in the game, they would still tack on that 15-yard penalty. And of course, people identified that that was ridiculous, and they slowly took that away. And here we are about seven or eight years later, and it looks like we're going to get more and more lenient with targeting. I'm also reminded of when the NFL instituted that opportunity to review pass interference calls. It only lasted for one season, I believe. It only was a couple years ago. And if you remember when that took place... They could never get it right. When we were watching it on film, we would think, okay, that's not pass interference, or that is pass interference, or okay, that that cornerback didn't turn around, or whatever else. Every single time, it was a mess, just as is targeting. So moving forward, we're never going to get it right, but it seems like we're moving in that direction. But still, like I said, a giant game of whack-a-mole, and we don't really know what's coming next. But still, something interesting to keep our eyes on. As far as the games this week, we are continuing to improve on our picks. We went 4-4 four and four against the spread last week and 4-4 four and four straight up. On the year, we are 12-20 and 20 against the spread and 14-10 and 10 straight up. It wasn't our best week last week, I will admit, but we are making gains against the spread and there's a lot of exciting lines this week from Vegas. So I think we're going to make some ground here in week five. Let's take a look at this week's eight most notable games. We're going to start off with a game that's on Friday. It has nothing to do with the SEC, but it was one of our I believe it's four or five games this week between teams that are undefeated. This is the number five Iowa Hawkeyes. They're a four-point favorite visiting the Maryland Terrapins. The over-under is sitting around 46 points. And again, this is on Friday night. This is the fourth game 
in the series between the two teams. I was one of the last two meetings dating back to 2015. This is the first of many matchups, like I said, between undefeated teams this week, and Maryland is looking for their first win over a top 10 team since 2007. But looking at Maryland's record thus far, it has not exactly been exciting. Their four wins have included close games against Illinois and West Virginia. Of course, they're not ranked, and they haven't been in the top 20 since 2003. There are massive implications here. This could be their first 5-0 start since 2001, and just fun fact, they actually won their conference championship that year. I believe they were in the ACC at that point in time. There was also some buzz around College Park that Taulia Tungavailoa, that name might ring a bell, it's Tua's younger brother, he transferred out from Alabama. He's putting together a Heisman campaign up there in College Park. On the year, he's got around uh, 1,340 yards passing, 10 touchdowns, one interception, quarterback rating of around 76.9. While Maryland is undefeated, their schedule only gets tougher from here. They've got at Ohio State, they've got Penn State at home, they got to go to Michigan State, and they also have Michigan at home. On the Iowa side, they have not wowed us at all, and of course that's not really out of the ordinary, but they've been consistent defensively. Their best win to date came in week two against a now unranked Iowa State team. Iowa struggled mightily last week against Colorado State, a team that actually, if you recall, gave Vanderbilt their first win since 2019. And for those of you with short memories, we mentioned it just a bit ago, Vanderbilt lost 62-0 against Georgia last week. So Iowa is not looking too good right now, especially considering their most recent performances. I don't think Iowa's that good. I really don't. Defensively, they're great, right? I can't take that away from them. But they haven't faced a high-quality offense or quarterback yet. I believe that Tua's little brother goes out there, pulls off the upset under the Friday Night Lights. We'll go Maryland winning, covering, and the overhitting 27-21 Terrapins. Next up, we've got an all-SEC matchup. Tennessee going on the road to visit the Missouri Tigers. Missouri is a three-point favorite. The over-under sitting around 64 and a half points. This has been a pretty even series since Missouri got into the SEC. It's five and four in favor of the Tigers. Tennessee has won the last two, though. It's a homecoming for Tennessee's head coach, Josh Heupel. He's the former Missouri offensive coordinator and quarterback's coach. Of course, we're looking at Tennessee. They put up a good fight against Florida. Well, they put up a good fight in the first half of that game. The uncertainty remains for Tennessee at quarterback, especially between Hendon Hooker, who is the transfer from Virginia Tech, and then, of course, Joe Milton III, who got injured in that pit game, I believe, earlier this year. Tennessee has not impressed anyone this year. They did have a decent showing against Pitt, but if you recall, Pittsburgh lost the following week against Western Michigan, so I don't think we can put a lot of stock into that Pittsburgh game, albeit it was a close loss. But at the same time, Missouri hasn't really impressed us either. Their defense especially has hurt them. They're allowing more than 450 yards per game, which is ranked 116th nationally. Their offense is their saving grace, and it's making up the difference right now. They're gaining more than 480 yards per game, and that places them 20th in the nation. They looked decent last week in in an overtime loss against Boston College, but it's still not that impressive, and again, that defense is hurting them. But just in the series alone, and more more so on the Tennessee side, in their last five road games outside of the state of Tennessee, Tennessee is one and four. I believe this week, we'll just make that one and five. Let's go with Missouri winning, covering, and the overhitting. We'll go 37-31 Tigers. Next up, we'll go on up to Lexington, Kentucky, where they will be hosting the number 10 Florida Gators, will the Kentucky Wildcats. Florida is a seven and a half point favorite. The over-under is sitting around 54 and a half points. Kentucky hasn't won 
against Florida at home since 1986. Kentucky, like I said earlier, they're one of the five remaining undefeated SEC teams, but their 4-0 start, it features two wins against SEC opponents, that's Missouri and South Carolina. Although they're undefeated, Kentucky has flirted with fire numerous times. I believe that they could easily be 1-3. and three. Their turnovers have been killer. Quarterback Will Levis, he has been incredibly inefficient. They, they brushed up with Chattanooga, almost blew that game apart. Their running game has been inconsistent. They're hampered by turnovers on that side of the ball as well. But their defense has carried them to this point, especially in last week's game against the South Carolina Gamecocks. On the Florida side, they look like a championship caliber program on both sides of the ball. Of course, they started off slow against Tennessee last week after a draining game against the Alabama Crimson Tide the week prior. But as the game progressed, quarterback Emory Jones got more and more comfortable, and he's settling in, and he's he's reminding us of who the Gators are. As Emory Jones is becoming more and more comfortable, what's been incredible to see is how Mullen, head coach Dan Mullen, is adapting the offense around him. Of course, we don't know when we'll see Anthony Richardson back for the Gators. If you recall, he had a really strong showing to open the year. He got hurt against South Florida in week two. But it doesn't really matter. I think Emory should be the guy moving forward. He's proven that he can lead the team. We just saw it a couple weeks ago when they faced off against Alabama. He is the leader moving forward. Kentucky has had chances to beat Florida at home in the past. Not too long ago, in fact. I believe two or three years ago, it was right on the doorstep. But they haven't gotten it done. And mistakes have cost them in each of those games. And I think the mistakes they've been making throughout the year cost them here as well. I'll say Florida wins, they cover, and the under narrowly hits will go 34-20 Gators. Moving on down to College Station. They are facing off with the Mississippi State Bulldogs are the Texas A&M Aggies. Number 15, Texas A&M Aggies. A&M is a 7-point favorite. The over-under sitting around 47 points. This is the 15th meeting between the two schools. And the series, fittingly enough, is tied 7-7. As we saw, both teams are coming off of a loss. Mississippi State, they've looked so strong offensively, except for that first half performance against LSU last week where they only had three points. But their offensive flurry at the end of the game made that score look a little bit more respectable and made that game look a little bit more close than it really was. Much like Kentucky, mistakes have hurt Mississippi State countless times. Turnovers, blown coverages, we talked a little bit about it on Monday it's hurt the Bulldogs substantially to this point. During the game, they'll likely look to spread the ball around in the air, but they're facing a defense who has allowed the fourth fewest passing yards per game this year at 119.5 yards. AM, like I talked about their defense, a one-time national championship pick by many, they're now looking to avoid an 0-2 start in conference play. The quarterback position continues to be an area of concern for AM. Zach Calzada. He led the team to only 10 points and 272 yards of offense last week against the Arkansas Razorbacks. But that game, of course, also came against the 12th best defense in the country when it comes to passing. I believe the AM skill guys, they are better than Mississippi State's skill guys. I believe their defense is better than Mississippi State's defense. I believe that Calzada just needs to get the ball to those skill players on the offensive side of the ball. If you win here, you've probably got at least three wins in the month of October, pushing aside that Alabama game. We'll talk about that next week. At Missouri and home with South Carolina, those both should be wins for the Aggies. I think they need this one. I think they get this one. I think they bounce back, they cover, and the under hits will go 28-13 Aggies. Now over to Baton Rouge, where the LSU Tigers will be hosting the number 22 Auburn Tigers. I went on a little bit of a rant to open the show regarding Auburn. 
Here they are facing off against LSU. LSU is a three and a half point favorite. The over-under is sitting around 54 and a half. This is Tigers versus Tigers. Most years, this is a toss-up. And it kind of, in some ways, is here too, just looking at the point spread. Auburn won last year, but this has been a pretty close series to date. Historically speaking, LSU leads the series 31, 23, and 1. As we discussed on Monday, LSU, they got a massive win in Starkville last week. Their passing game is starting to click. Their defense does not look nearly as bad as they did in week one against UCLA. And quarterback Max Johnson, he's getting more comfortable. LSU now has the 22nd best passing offense in the nation as a result. I firmly believe that Auburn is a disaster right now. And the best hope they have in this game is on the ground through Tank Bigsby, the running back. Auburn is averaging 7.1 yards per carry throughout this year so far, which is second in the nation. So they can make gains on the ground. But as we discussed earlier in the show and also on Monday, quarterback play is the biggest wild card right now. We don't know how much of Bo Nix we'll see. We don't know if Harson will switch solely to TJ Finley. And here's a big question. If TJ Finley is the quarterback, how does he react in that environment? What motivation does he have coming back to LSU? For those of you who might recall, Finley transferred from LSU to Auburn. He was playing for LSU a year ago. So what is that like for him coming back to Baton Rouge to face his former team? We kind of saw that last week with Jack Cohn for Notre Dame facing off against his former team and the Wisconsin Badgers. We might see the same thing transpire here. There's too many questions for Auburn right now putting aside the firing the wide receivers coach and all that kind of nonsense, I don't think they have enough time to develop answers to those questions quite yet. I say LSU wins, they cover, and the under hits will go 30-17 LSU. On to our bigger games of the week. We've got number seven Cincinnati, a two-point favorite, visiting number nine Notre Dame, the over-under sitting around 50 and a half points. This is the first meeting between the two teams in more than a century. That last meeting came in 1900, the second game ever between these two teams. Notre Dame won that first game back in 1900. Cincinnati is coming off of a bye. We've talked about how many of Notre Dame's upcoming opponents are coming off of byes. So Cincinnati is well rested, but they haven't really been tested to this point outside of a week three matchup at Indiana. But even in that one, we didn't really learn a whole lot about Cincinnati and their resolve and so on. Cincinnati, they have the ninth highest scoring offense in the country, and they also have the 13th fewest points allowed. But those numbers are skewed due to their competition. They played Miami of Ohio, Murray State, and of course, like I mentioned, Indiana. If Cincinnati wants to be taken seriously, they need this game. This is a massive resume builder. I reminded to just a year ago when Cincinnati felt that they deserved to be in the college football playoff. But everyone said you didn't have wins that warranted you being in there. You didn't have a resume that warranted you being a part of that conversation. UCF in 2017, when they claimed that fake national championship, when they went out there, beat the Auburn Tigers and well, the Peach Bowl or whatever that bowl was, and they went out there and said, oh, we were undefeated. We deserve to be in that playoff. And instead of UCF being up there, we got an incredible game between the Alabama Crimson Tide and the Georgia Bulldogs. But in that case, if UCF had had a really quality win on their resume, they might have been considered. The same is true for Cincinnati right here. A win against Notre Dame could be a game changer when it comes to their possibility and their likelihood of getting into the college football playoff. For Notre Dame, the game stands as the second one in their tough three-game stretch. We had Wisconsin last week, Cincinnati this week, and then they have to go visit Virginia Tech next week. They got a big win in Chicago last week. We talked a little bit about it. They proved the doubters wrong. They've identified that they're not good on the ground, that they're not great at the rushing attack. So Brian Kelly, the head coach for Notre Dame, he put the ball in the hands of the quarterbacks. Jack Cohn started the game after Jack Cohn got hurt. Drew Pine came in, and they both 
deliver. There's some uncertainty right now as to whether Jack Cohn will play quarterback for the Irish after he got injured last week, or if we'll see Drew Pine again. But here's the thing for me. While Notre Dame's win was impressive last week, it was really just the fourth quarter that was the most impressive that helped separate them. We talked about how the defense and special teams outscored both offenses, and that's what showed up big for Notre Dame last week. So pushing aside all of that, I think defense and special teams could be the difference for the Fighting Irish here. Two weeks ago, I would have absolutely picked Cincinnati to win this game handily, might I add. Not anymore. I have learned my lesson. I'm not going to doubt Notre Dame. I might do it next week. We'll see about that one. But I'm not going to doubt them here. Not in South Bend. I say Notre Dame wins. They cover. And the overhits will go 31-23, fighting Irish. On to two of our most prominent games of the week here in the SEC. We've got number eight, Arkansas, going to Athens to visit number two, Georgia. Georgia is an 18-point favorite, and the over-under is sitting around 49 points. Georgia has owned this series thus far, and they haven't lost to Arkansas since 2010. Overall, the series is in favor of Georgia 11-4. The Dogs, they are outscoring their opponents 168-23, and they're averaging more than 450 yards per game. The Razorbacks, they're outscoring their opponents by a comparable margin, 143-58, to averaging a little over 480 yards per game. Both offenses are very competent. Those numbers showed us that right there. And both defenses are strong as well. Georgia gives up just about 100 yards less than Arkansas does per game, sitting around 181 yards per game. Georgia's coming in with a lot of confidence right now and a very scary defense. We talked about it before. They crushed Vanderbilt, a very bad, a terrible Vanderbilt team, a bad South Carolina team, and a decent UAB team. I would say a decent one. And now, of course, an underperforming Clemson team. So if you look at all those wins, we'll kind of get into it in a second. But I don't really know what we know about Georgia quite yet, but they've only given up one touchdown defense. And there's not, there hasn't been a, mo- a lot of pressure on the offense as a result. Quarterback JT Daniels, he's only thrown five touchdowns this year, two interceptions, and he hasn't really needed to play that much because the defense has done so well, and they put up some pretty large margins as a result, so they haven't really required much of JT Daniels to this point. Arkansas, though, they have a far more impressive resume, of course. They Killed the Aggies' dreams last week. They got the Sark era off to a rough start for Texas a couple weeks prior. Their offensive attack is generally a run-heavy approach, and it's led by K.J. Jefferson. Wanted to see him be as close to 100% as possible to have a chance. We saw him get injured against Texas A&M, I believe it was in the second or third quarter. But Sam Pittman, the head coach for Arkansas, he said that he was just sore and that he does expect him to play Saturday and be pretty strong during that game. I talked about it on Monday. I am a big fan of the Arkansas Razorbacks. And I do think it's time to take them seriously, particularly in the SEC West. If they lose this game, it does not necessarily mean that they're out of the SEC West picture right now. But I don't know if they beat Georgia outright here in Athens. We'll get to see, though, how good Georgia is. Like I said, they played Vanderbilt. They played South Carolina. They played UAB. And I don't think we really know what Clemson means anymore. We put a lot of stock in that when we started the season. But what does it actually mean now? And finally, we have a team that can test Georgia on both sides of the ball. Even still, I say that the dogs win. Arkansas will cover. 18 is very high for me here. And the under will hit. I'll say 24-19, Georgia. Lastly, the SEC CBS Game of the Week. We've got the number 12 Ole Miss Rebels going to visit the number one Alabama Crimson Tide. Alabama's a 14-point favorite. The over-under is sitting around 78 and a half. 
This is a game that many people have had circled on their calendars. They've had it on their radar for quite some time. As you probably have heard, Nick Saban has never lost to a former assistant. He is 23-0. Of course, Ole Miss's head coach, Lane Kiffin, is a former assistant of Saban's. So many think that this could be the moment that becomes 23-1. Last year's matchup, we saw 111 combined points between the two teams, more than 1,300 combined yards. But both defenses are improved this year. So while it will likely be a high-scoring affair, I don't think it will quite be that high-scoring as it was a year ago. Ole Miss, they've been impressive at 3-0, but they haven't really been challenged. Kind of like we were just talking about with Georgia in some ways when they haven't really been challenged. Ole Miss is scheduled thus far. Louisville, Austin P, and Tulane. None of those teams posed a threat. This is our first chance to see how serious Ole Miss is. Their quarterback, Matt Corral, he is leading the Heisman race right now, narrowly over Alabama's quarterback, Bryce Young. And Kiffin, the head coach for Ole Miss and offensive coordinator, Jeff Levy, they have that offense humming as usual. But while Matt Corral has been great this year, I still can't shake the memory of him being so mistake-ridden last year, of continuously getting in his own way just a year ago. And you haven't really seen that in the first three games of the season, but also it's, again, consider who he's played. This is the first time that he will be tested by an SEC defense, so it'll be interesting to see how he holds up. On the Bama side, we have a much broader picture of what Alabama looks like and what we can come to expect from them after that Florida game a couple weeks ago. Bryce Young, he is continuing to improve. And the skill guys like Jamison Williams and John Mechie and so on, they're beginning to stand out. If I'm Ole Miss, I hated watching that Florida game because it woke up the Alabama defense. If you remember, about a year ago, the Ole Miss game where they put up 48 points on Alabama, that woke up the defense. The following week, they went out there and thrashed the Georgia Bulldogs. Yes, the first half wasn't pretty, but they woke up that defense. Pete Golden, the defensive coordinator, stepped back and said, okay, we can't have that happen. Georgia came into town, had a pretty good first half, shut them out in the second half. And I believe that that Ole Miss game woke up that defense. And the same thing, I believe, happened down in Gainesville a couple weeks ago. Alabama, they have not trailed in their last 53 quarters of play. The last time they trailed, the following play was a 90-yard touchdown pass to Jalen Waddle against Georgia in the third quarter. I do think that probably changes here. They will probably trail at some point against Ole Miss. But I see them winning. I see Ole Miss covering because 14 is very high for me here. And the over will hit. I'll go 44-38, Crimson Tide. To recap, we're going Maryland, Florida, Missouri, Texas A&M, LSU, Notre Dame, Georgia, and Alabama. Well, we didn't have a ton of prominent games last week. We've definitely got a full plate this week. Whatever happens, you know that we'll be here on Monday to discuss it all. So enjoy the games this Saturday, and we'll catch y'all next week.